you know, there's a history of this too, way prior to what happened in Micanopy, going back into the 70s in Chicago. And that's what's coming next, and that's something we came here to talk to you about too, um, for Kathy, Kathy Davidson. That matter is being pursued by the Michigan State Police, the Chicago Police Department, and the FBI. They interviewed your mother a week, two weeks ago, asked her about that, and the FBI offered us this opportunity. And this is a joyous suggestion, by the way. She said, um, if any of my brothers or sisters has a heart to tell the truth, tell you what really happened, what they know. Secrets and shame. It's a nasty combination. A former cult leader with a history of torturing children has been living in Marietta for years now. Police say 75-year-old Anna Elizabeth Young used to live in Florida where she ran a religious boarding school. But new information tonight connects her to a cold case involving the death of a child. That little girl, the first little girl, who I would eventually learn wasn't the first at all, her name is Kathy. And I'm not sure she ever had a chance. She was failed by the people closest to her, who had it within their power, who have it within their power still, to raise their voices for her. Instead, their silence conveys one fact. To them, Kathy was disposable. Police say Anna Elizabeth Young got away with murder for 25 years. For many of those, she lived quietly here in this Marietta home. It's confusing, contradictory, and a little eerie to see the house where 75-year-old Anna Elizabeth Young has lived the place where she hid from police behind signs depicting her love of Jesus. More than 20 of them grab your attention as you walk to her front door. It almost feels like overcompensating for this description of how a grand jury believes she killed a child back in the late 80s. The indictment says she premeditated the murder of a child who went by Moses by withholding food, willfully torturing, maliciously punishing, and unlawfully caging the boy. Police say this happened 25 years ago, and neighbors can't believe their quiet elderly neighbor had a secret so dark. She's living down the street from me, and I, that's, it's, it's horrifying, really. I just don't know where you can get that mindset to even do that to a child. Police say Young is a former cult leader who ran a religious boarding school in Florida. The children called her mother Anna. She moved to Georgia after serving time for bathing a 12-year-old girl in chemicals that caused severe burns. She eluded police for eight years until they caught up with her in a relative's attic. Robert and Anna greet people in a reserved and practiced manner and solemnly tell them what they've told countless others. A map of the area is shown where X marks the spot. People then ask, have you tried searching here or there? Robert's reply is always yes. But the question of was it enough? Hangs. Campers still come to the area, now perhaps more than ever, to curiously check out the spot. Kathy's picture with the general information of her disappearance is posted at the entrance of the park. An occasional police car cruises the area to lend an almost paradox to the notion of security and safety. And so the pulse of a busy society beats on, seemingly unmindful of personal calamity. That was another excerpt from The Innovator, the Governor's State University publication.
they ran a picture of Kathy Davidson, as well as one of her stepmother and father along with it. Robert is on the phone while Anna stares blankly, a cigarette poised between her fingers that hover just shy of her lips. Beneath it, the caption reads, Mother and father of lost child, help is needed. By September 11th, ten days after Kathy went missing, neither Robert or Anna had come down to the police station to give a formal interview, meaning, while not surrounded by onlookers who continued to put in their two cents and toss barbs at police while the investigators tried to question them in a serious and undisturbed manner. The two had also not made their other children available for questioning, despite many requests, which seemed odd since most of those children were of an age that would have been old enough to give pertinent information about what actually happened. After all, according to their parents' story, these siblings had been the last people with Kathy down by the water near the creek, all playing together. While police continued to try to get the Davidsons to take the questioning more seriously and agree to proper interviews, they also continued to follow up on all the creepers. Indiana police roped off a trailer at Indiana Dunes Park, where a possible suspect had changed clothes before leaving the park after having that troubling encounter with the family. This would be Kool-Aid Guy, remember him? The one I described in episode one who spooked the woman enough to call multiple law enforcement agencies until she finally got someone to take the report? The guy who stared at her six-year-old twins and then apparently chatted up her son in the park restroom? Yeah, that one. So there was that. Oh, and also three criminal sexual psychopaths had escaped from White Sox Baseball Park while on an outing. Yes, apparently sexual psychopaths were having a nice field trip at a ballpark when they escaped the day before Kathy went missing. At this point in the investigation, they'd still not been apprehended. And if you were a teenager looking to enjoy Warren Dunes around this time, maybe smoke a joint or have a beer with your friends, you were also pretty likely to be called in to speak with the police. Every hippie who sunbathed on that beach during this time frame was talked to or had a finger pointed at by someone. Long shaggy hair. He walks funny. Smelled like pot. He was up to something. Pages and pages of tips that didn't pan out because they were really nothing in the first place. Meanwhile, Grandmother Davidson, Robert's mother, the same woman who kept harping on how awful Kathy's mother Portia was, complained to Robert Dunn, our friendly Illinois State House representative, that cars were driving by the Davidson's trailer at the dunes, yelling racial insults. It was even alleged that someone shot at the group, though there had been no reports to police of any such shootings. This did, however, give police another opening to go and visit the trailer and ask some more questions. When they arrived, Mr. Davidson relayed how there had been several cars driving by and making racial statements. He said they all seemed to have Indiana plates. He was advised by police to try and get plate numbers in the future, something more tangible for them to look into. While they were there, however, Mr. Davidson made no mention of any shooting incidents. During a Chicago Tribune interview around this time, the writer told a police lieutenant that Mr. Davidson said a white female in her 20s had been seen in the area where Kathy went missing, 
but when Mr. Davidson was asked about it, he would not give a direct answer about where the information came from, other than dropping his sister-in-law's name. When police went ahead and contacted her, she had no idea what he was talking about, and she'd been getting calls about this from the media, too. She had no idea where that story came from. It was almost like false stories were being planted. In fact, as I read the report further, it became pretty clear to me that it was Mr. Davidson himself who was planting these false leads. Around this time, park rangers also relayed to police that the -the behind-the-scenes talk from people that had been searching felt that they'd been misled by the Davidsons. They said that they were led to believe that Kathy was the only child of a young college couple. Folks started to wonder why none of the other kids who were supposed to be right there with Kathy at the time she went missing had any more information. Something didn't feel right. And then there was a prank call. Portia Davidson was working at the El Matador Cocktail Lounge in Chicago when the call came in. It was answered by a regular bar patron who handed her the phone. When she grabbed the receiver and said yes, the party calling did not identify himself, but he made this statement. They found a little girl's body in the lagoon. How soon can you get here? Portia said that she knew immediately it was the voice of her ex-husband, Robert Davidson. She went into a state of shock and dropped the receiver. The bar patron picked it up and began talking with the caller. Portia left immediately and went straight to the police post. She arrived around 9 p.m., Portia insisted that she knew her ex-husband's voice and was almost certain that it was Robert Davidson behind the call. After assuring her that no body had been found, they continued to speak to Portia about the things that Anna and Robert had been complaining about, something to do with her collecting money. Portia said that the church was the one collecting the money for Kathy, and she'd collected a few dollars herself, but it had all been turned over to the Davidsons. She couldn't understand why Robert and Anna would be saying anything about the money being collected. She said she had been so distraught that she had reached out to the state's attorney, but was told that they couldn't do anything unless the state police requested their assistance. What happened next was one of those moments. You know, the kind where you wish you could be a fly on the wall. Officers accompanied Portia over to the camper trailer the Davidsons were living in. She walked right up to Robert and asked him why he'd called her. I never called you, he yelled. Police outlined what had occurred regarding the call and his response was, that information was on some news story from Chicago at noon. A crowd began to gather at the trailer as Robert continued to yell and grumbled about how he knew the FBI had his phone tapped. So why don't they look into tracing the prank call, he said. Angrily, he wondered aloud why so many police were assigned to investigate a prank call when none of them were searching. Now he knew full well the search had been done repeatedly. Surely he could see it happening around him. Police couldn't just keep searching and clogging up resources on things that had already been covered. Now, as a cop, by this point, you have to be looking at the Davidsons as possibly having done something to their own daughter because what they were doing, 
particularly Robert, was textbook redirection. Pointing fingers elsewhere every time police got close to any wrongdoing or misleading on his part. I know that red flags were popping up all over the place as I read the report, and frankly, I think the police were being more lenient and understanding with the family than I may have been inclined to be, given this specific set of facts, but I understand where they were coming from. They really didn't have anything but suspicious behavior on the part of the parents. Well, accompanied by exactly zero evidence to suggest that Kathy Davidson was ever at Warren Dune State Park that day. Nobody saw her there but family members. So it's no surprise that it's around this time that police began pushing harder for the Davidsons to let them interview the kids. Now remember, they can't force anyone to come in for an interview. That's something that we, as the general public, tend to forget. If police don't have enough to arrest or hold someone, we don't have to talk to police, and there's nothing that can compel us to do so. Every day, with every case, police have to walk that fine line between getting what they need and not alienating the people who may continue to talk to them if they handle it in the right way. And that right way is different for every case in every situation. Skilled investigators know when they need to dial it back and when they need to push. It seems as though the Davidsons knew police were honing in on them. There was a desperation seeping from Anna as she spoke to police at the trailer the next time. She said that they had gotten three prank phone calls about Kathy, one about her being in the lagoon, another about her being in the shrubs somewhere, and another about her being in garbage cans. Then Anna immediately switched gears and asked if they had checked on Portia because she heard she was collecting money under a different name now. When police pressed her on why Portia would be doing that, Anna's lackluster response hinted at the last name being used having something to do with one of Portia's male friends. Anna demanded that police stop Portia from collecting any money because she felt that Portia was just buying new clothes with it. The next time police approached Mr. Davidson at the trailer, he had several tape recorders running and a photographer taking pictures. He demanded to know about the tip regarding a white man on the beach with a black child. Police told him that the troopers had no idea where that rumor started, but it was just that, a rumor. They had no such report. Then Mr. Davidson started in on his usual routine about asking why the search wasn't still going on and what else was being done. Officers patiently answered all his questions. At the end of that chat, police calmly told them that they needed to interview the children. Mr. Davidson said if they wanted to talk to the kids, they could go to Chicago and do it because he didn't want to deal with the expense involved in bringing the children back to the new Buffalo Post. Ironically, at this moment, to put a finer point on how full of shit Robert was about the search, a helicopter arrived to do another pass, so they were unable to continue their discussion due to the noise. Later that day, after the noisy helicopter had landed, Mr. Davidson grudgingly told police that the kids were en route to the park, and he demanded that officers be available to interview them when they arrived. Quite a few hours passed, though, much longer than it would have taken for the kids to get there, and Mr. Davidson called the police post after 7 p.m. that night and said that the children had finally arrived and they were ready for their interview. He was told by police that they needed to be interviewed at the police post, not at the park, because they wanted a quiet atmosphere with no distractions. 
Mr. Davidson said there were only friends at the park and it would be quiet. He said he was just too tired to bring the kids in, and then he demanded that the sergeant call him back, and he hung up. Five minutes later, the state police post sergeant called Mr. Davidson back. He reiterated the importance of eyewitnesses being under the appropriate conditions necessary for an interview. And then the sergeant laid it right out, plain and simple. If you have any concern for your daughter at all, you will grant this simple request. Robert Davidson growled at the sergeant, saying that he'd been lied to again, and then he hung up the phone a second time. Now what happens next? I'm sure you'll be able to see it. The choreography here is blatant. The report notes that the sergeant was hung up on, and then reads, quote, A short time later, four black newspaper investigators arrived at the post. They advised that they are on the return trip from East Lansing headquarters and wanted the name and address of Portia Davidson. They were given the address, and they requested to keep informed of any new developments. While they were there, the Davidsons, their friends, and their children all arrived. Then the Davidsons made a big deal of telling the newspapermen that they didn't want any police hassling their children. They requested that one of the three newspaper reporters, Floyd Rollins, Al Johnson, or Otis Shabas from Muhammad Speaks Newspaper, be present in the room while the children were interviewed. They also wanted the interviews taped. The officer granted the request, quote, because of the importance of the interviews. Mr. Rollins was a gentleman who sat in on the questioning of the children, and the officer noted that the following interviews were completed without incident. The interviews began at 7.42 in the evening. I don't think I have to explain to you why that might not be the most optimum time to be interviewing children. 15-year-old Anna's biological son from her first marriage was the first one to be interviewed. He said that he had traveled to the park in the orange car and when they arrived, the first thing he did was run down the hill and sit on the sand and look at the water. He didn't know who was the last one to see Kathy, but they all went to look for her when she didn't respond to calls that supper was ready. He was sure that she didn't have any money on her, but she did like candy and knew where the candy stand was located at the park. He said that Kathy didn't bring any toys with her, and he didn't think there was any reason for her to return to the car. He said she was wearing a white top, blue shorts, and white shoes. He described that the picnic lunch was put out about halfway up the hill, but not close enough to see cars on the road. He said Kathy's hair was in French braids like the picture Anna had provided. He told them that Kathy did not know how to swim, but said she had been in the lake before and thinks that she would have taken her shoes off before going in. He didn't know if Kathy knew her way around the park, but he said that they had been there before, and in fact they were there a couple days before Labor Day weekend. He personally felt that Kathy had been abducted. Next up was a 16-year-old girl who was one of Anna's stepchildren from an earlier marriage. She was not a blood relation. She said that she also came to the park in the orange car and that Kathy went in the green Torino with her parents. She said that they did not stop anywhere on the way from Chicago. She said when they arrived, she ran down the hill like the other children and then went to help set up the picnic lunch. She said the last time she saw Kathy was by the creek and that she did not have any toys or money with her. She described the picnic lunch being spread out on a blanket seven or eight feet up from the path. She described Kathy as wearing blue shorts, 
a white blouse, and white shoes, and her hair was in French braids like her mother. She believed that Kathy would have taken her shoes off if she went in the water, but she couldn't swim. When asked if she had anything else to add, she said that the white panties found by the searchers were just like hers, and they checked the house and Kathy's weren't there. Next up was Anna's biological daughter, also from her first marriage. She was 14 years old. She couldn't remember the color of the car she came in, but she said in the car with her was her brother, and that 16-year-old non-relative family member, the stepchild of Anna's. She said they came directly from Chicago and did not stop anywhere. When they arrived, she said she took a bag out of the trunk. She said her little brother and Kathy had already gone down the hill to the beach. She didn't know who the last person to see Kathy was, but she thinks that her uncle Marvin and her brother were the first to begin looking for Kathy when she didn't come back for supper. She said Kathy didn't bring any toys or money, and there was nothing that she'd go back to the car to get. She said Kathy was wearing sky blue shorts and a white blouse and her hair was in French braids. She said that Kathy didn't swim and probably would not go in the water without somebody with her. She said Kathy does know the park and has climbed the hills and knows her way to the bathrooms. Next up was 12-year-old another one of Anna's children from her first marriage. He said he came in the orange car that his brother was driving. He said Kathy was in the green car with her parents. He said he also ran down the hill when they arrived, but he didn't have any swimming trunks with him. He said he last saw Kathy by the sand at the creek. When they went to look for Kathy, his parents went to the concession area, and the others went all around in different directions, asking questions of people on the beach. He said that Kathy was wearing a white blouse, blue shorts, and white sandals, with her hair and braids. Police then spoke with little six-year-old who was the same age as Kathy at the time. He said that he went with his parents when they arrived and he didn't go with the rest to play in the sand. He said he last saw Kathy down by the water. He wasn't asked many of the other questions that the other children were asked and mostly spoke with the officer about tunnels in the sand they noted that nothing of value was provided. Next up was the 18-year-old who drove the other car, their other sibling, who said he drove all the other children in his car except Kathy and the six-year-olds. He said they didn't stop anywhere on the way. He took the water cooler out of the trunk when they arrived. Everyone else had gone down the hill, and he walked down on the sidewalk toward the picnic area. He said the last time he saw Kathy was when he was getting out of the car. He said that when they realized Kathy was missing, they started to look around and ask people questions. He said Kathy was wearing a white shirt and blue shorts with her hair in French braids. He didn't think that she knew her way around the park and that she wouldn't go to the bathroom by herself. The last child to be questioned was a 17-year-old family friend had stopped by their house on the spur of the moment that day, and so he drove his own car, a gold Renault. He insisted that they had stopped nowhere on the way. He drove his own car because he didn't want to get stuck at the park if he decided to leave before the rest. When they arrived, he helped get the food out of the car, along with a couple of the other kids. He said he walked down to the bench picnic area, via the stairs, 
and last saw Kathy about 25 to 30 feet away from the creek. He said she didn't come to supper, and then everyone started looking for her. He noted that he and took the path around to the south and met Ranger Stilson and told him of the missing child. Around that time, they heard the announcement about Kathy over the loudspeaker. He said the picnic was set up about 12 feet up the side of the sand hill, and he described how they leaned different bottles and items against a big tree. He felt that they were sort of hidden in that spot, but they could see people around them. He said Kathy was wearing a white cotton blouse and white shoes, and she might not take them off to go in the water. He said that he never saw Kathy swim in the lake, but he had seen a playing in the lake. He didn't know if Kathy knew the area, but she'd been to the park before. At the end, he added that a woman named Debbie had ID'd the picture of Kathy, and this was still on his mind. Robert and Anna expressed a desire to go through the list of questions that the officers had asked the children. So police took them through the same set of questions, and the answers that they provided are interesting. They did not feel that Kathy had any money on her, but they said that she did like candy. She did not bring any toys with her, and her favorite toy, a Raggedy Ann doll, was still at home. Police were asking that question, by the way, about the toys and the candy, to see if Kathy might have wandered back to the car to get anything, or up to the concession area to get candy. Presumably the idea would be if she'd done that, someone would have had easier access to snatch her, because it was near the parking area. Robert and Anna didn't remember any particular faces in the area, but they felt that if they saw pictures, it might come back to them. They said that Kathy knew her name and her address and phone number, and she was a good child. She had no problems in school. They estimated that about five other black people were in the park that day. They didn't know any of them. They said that the panties that were recovered by searchers were the same size and like the ones that they had bought, and then they checked at home and Kathy's weren't there. When they were asked if they stopped anywhere on the way, they said they stopped and bought some fried chicken at a place like Kentucky Fried Chicken and then some other hot stuff at a small store on 159th Street before leaving Chicago for the park. They said they drove in the green Torino and they had our and Kathy with them, the two youngest, because those two play hard together, they said, and they could keep them apart. After this final interview, all of the members of the family looked at the mugshots of the escapees, but nobody said they recognized them. Anna then told the children that she wanted them all to tell the truth, and she hoped that they all had because this officer was a good police officer. They all indicated that they had told the truth. Mr. Davidson said that he was beginning to accept the fact that Kathy was gone and something had happened to her. He said that they would be staying at the park for the weekend, but probably be returning to Chicago on Monday. So a couple things jumped out at me here. One question stood out like a sore thumb and suggested to me, among other things, that the children had been prepped. Robert and Anna, they messed up. 
There was one question that every child answered the exact same way, but the parents apparently didn't anticipate because they answered differently. Every one of the children said that they didn't stop anywhere on the way to Warren Dunes that day. Not one child answered otherwise. Not even the one who drove, the 18-year-old. While Robert and Anna said they stopped to get fried chicken and, quote, hot stuff on the way. Now maybe they did. Or maybe they didn't. But wouldn't you expect at least one kid to remember either being schlepped into a KFC or some fried chicken place, as the Davidsons described it, or sitting impatiently in the car outside of said chicken place, anxiously awaiting the day's adventures at the dunes while mom and dad grabbed lunch? I sure would. In the next episode, you'll hear my interview with Detective Douglas Kill with the Michigan State Police. Stay tuned.